Hey everyone, today we're cozying up with Amy Liu. She's the CEO and founder of clean beauty brand Tower 28. We chat about how her own struggles with eczema inspired her product vision, how her company is helping transform the relationship women have with their own skin, and how her Chinese American identity has shaped her company philosophy. Check it out. Welcome to Cozying Up with a Clear Cut, where we get up close and personal with women that inspire us. Today, we are sitting down with Amy Liu. She is the CEO and founder of clean beauty brand Tower 28 Beauty. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat about Tower 28 and your journey. Um, we were just talking about how I was trying some of the products and they are absolutely adorable and amazing to use. I'm wearing the lip gloss right now and it smells like candy. Like I can't stop licking my lips right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad to hear that. Um, we really do put a lot of thought into making our products um, not only non-toxic and not irritating. Part of my story is that I've been in the beauty industry for a long time, but I also have really sensitive skin. I've had eczema my entire adult life. Um, but in addition to that, I really wanted the products to be um, fun. Cause I think that's what makeup is. And I think a lot of the products that are targeted towards, um, people with sensitive skin often can be really medical in their approach or even, um, you know, kind of look boring. And so that was one of the things that was really important to me. So I'm glad it resonates with you. Yeah. So with that being said, can you outline your career path and what ultimately inspired you to start tower 28? Yeah, for sure. So I've um, wanted to be an entrepreneur, I think, ever since I was a really young kid. My dad growing up was an entrepreneur. And I think I I had this um, role model of my dad being a, an entrepreneur. And he really experienced all the highs and lows. But he, you could tell he really felt it. And he felt really attached to his job. And my mom, on the other hand, I feel like she had a job too. But she sort of was more of a check-in, check-out. And it was very much a job to her. And even though my dad had the highs and the lows, I remember feeling like I want that that version of it where you really feel attached and it seems so um, important to you. And so I always wanted to do it, but I also had a lot of, frankly, fear about anything, right? Whether it was failure, I didn't feel like I had enough money to do it. I didn't have enough experience. And so I graduated from business school with a concentration in entrepreneurship. And then after that, started working really in the beauty industry. So I went to um, Smashbox Cosmetics. I went to Kate Somerville. I went to Josie Marin. Um, and then I spent a few years consulting at local digitally native brands here in Los Angeles. And the whole time I was like, oh, I'm just getting more experience. I'm getting closer to, you know, being a number two. I'm like learning, I'm learning. And then a friend of mine was like, I thought you said you always wanted to do this. Like, when are mm -hmm. you going to take the leap? You're not getting any younger. And um, I, he was, it was kind of like the right kick in the butt that I needed, frankly. Um, and that's when I really started Tower 28. So I launched, I raised money about three years ago. Um, and I launched about almost two years ago. And what was the scariest part of launching Tower 28? And what was the most rewarding part? Uh, I mean, scary. There's so many scary things. I, I'm sure you can attest to this too as an entrepreneur yourself, but um, failure mm -hmm. is a big one. Um, I think as somebody who's had a long time background working in the same industry, it felt very um, public to me, even though I'm not like a, I'm not an influencer. I don't own any 
major platforms of influence. Um, but my friends all work in the beauty industry, right? So I felt like there was this, you know, when I, I think anytime you tell people you're going to do something and then they all, and gratefully, a lot of my friends said, oh, I think you're, you know, of course this will go well. Of course it'll go well for you because you've been doing it for so long. But then it made me feel even more nervous that I would not do well. Um, so I think one of the scary things is just trying to be honest. Right. And I think that you work on something I'm sure you show people along the way, but you do it somewhat in isolation, right? Where you're like, I think this is cute. Do you think it's cute? Do you think it's good? And, um, and then you launch and you kind of hope that uh, it resonates with people and that what your intentions are really uh, go out into the world in the way that people receive them. So I think that was definitely one of the, I mean, all to be honest with you, so much of it has been scary, right? I think the initial part of it, I think the um, even like initial pitch meetings to go to retailers was scary for me. Raising money was scary for me. Um, I think just putting yourself out there is probably the um, the umbrella to it, though. Right. It's hard to put yourself out there. And I forgot the second part of the question. Scary. And what was the other one? The most rewarding part. Oh, the most rewarding part, I think, is always the people, um, whether I'm talking about the customers or I'm talking about my team or my kind of beauty community from an industry standpoint. I think people always make the journey more fun, more rewarding. Um, I love reading the product reviews and hearing how much people love the product. And specifically, I don't know if I said this, but um, I've had a history of eczema my entire adult life. And so one of the, th one of the reasons I really wanted to start Tower 28 or any makeup brand was because I felt like there was a hole in the market as somebody who wanted to wear makeup, um, but was kind of afraid to put makeup on my face because I was afraid it would make my skin worse. Um, so that was one of the things I was really looking for was to feel safe using a product and have it actually just not make my skin worse and be good for my eczema, even though I really want to cover it up. And so we particularly have one product called our SOS spray. Um, and that product is really antibacterial and anti-inflammatory. And I see so many, and it's really, we, we named it SOS save our skin because it literally did that for me. Um, I <laughs> still get eczema. So not to say that it completely gets rid of your eczema or your acne or whatever your problem is. But for me, it's made it so it's so much more um, under control. I've never had my skin for this period of time be so uh, something I can count on for such a long time, like so reliable, I guess is probably the right word. Um, and so when I read other people or I see other people have like great reviews about and I see the before and afters, about how it works for them, it really means a lot to me because I personally feel like it's, um, it changes the way that you walk through the world when you feel more confident. And so much for a woman, especially, I think society really makes your, your looks um, something that is so based forward and a part of your confidence and identity that I think uh, if, if something we're putting out into the world can make that kind of a difference, in your life, I think it's huge. I mean, I went through, um, as somebody with eczema, I've literally gone through everything. I've done um, every single diet. I've gone 
to Western doctors. I've gone to Eastern doctors. I've tried, I was on a regular, the only thing that really worked for me on an ongoing basis before SOS, to be honest with you, was um, topical and oral steroids, which make me feel really bad about myself using them because I know that they're not long-term good for you, but they worked for Mm -hmm. me. And so I felt like I was choosing vanity over um, my health in a lot of ways. Um, So that's, anyways, that's a long-winded way (laughs) of saying uh, the thing that really makes me happy is when people like our products. Yeah, definitely. So how did you come up with this formula? I know you had a background in beauty, but what was the first step into coming up with a clean product that didn't exist that really worked well? Yeah. So the, first of all, like I am not a chemist. I'm not a scientist. I have a background in working at beauty companies, specifically in sales and marketing. Right. So I do know about product development, but one thing I think is really important, um, in my personal story is that I really believe in, I believe in people who have deep experience and and authority, right? So we, I don't research every ingredient every day constantly and look at the no-no list, but Credo does. Credo does a really good job of that. So we looked at Credo's no-no list and we partnered with them to make sure that we were making products that were as non-toxic as possible. So that was sort of the gold standard from a no-no list perspective. And then from a um, irritation standpoint, I personally was using the National Eczema Association as my guide for what not to use in terms of everything from like detergent to um, like body lotion and things like that. And so we looked at their no-no list and I think it's pretty uh, comprehensive. Their no-no list is really all about irritation. So we took a look at that list too. So basically making the products is this combination of saying like, these are all the things I want this product to be, but then it cannot include all of these ingredients in it. And so then you go into a very iterative process of development. Um, Ours is even more stringent than I think the average one, because in combination of our giant no-no list, we also do quite a bit of testing, which in a, is still cosmetics is really unregulated. So all of this testing is generally at your own. um, You're doing it because you're trying to cover your own ass to some extent. But we're also in addition to that doing um, irritation testing, making sure dermatologist signs off on it to say that it is safe for sensitive skin. Um, And just we're, we're making sure we're dotting our I's and crossing the T's for sure. Yeah, definitely. And what's a piece of advice you would give to an aspiring female entrepreneur? I mean, so many things, right? Um, I would say the one thing is just to to start, right? Uh, to get people around you who believe in you and believe in what you're doing, because I think uh, it is really hard to keep going if you don't feel like you're making um if you're gaining momentum. So one piece of advice I got really early that I thought made a difference was I I asked um, a really successful entrepreneur I, I knew, I said, you know, like, what are the things I should be focused on? Should I be focused on like this KPI? Should it be this one? And I was like using all these very businessy, typical things that you look at as metrics of success. And he was like, honestly, just throw all of that out the window. He's like, the number one thing you need is momentum. You just need to feel like it's working so that you can get up every day and you can keep going. Because if you don't have that wind at your back or that feeling that like all the effort you're putting into it is going somewhere, like 
you just don't have the motivation to, to do it. And I think that's, that was great advice. And it's been really true for me. Yeah, that's great. I haven't heard that one before, but it feels very true. And, you know, you, you need to have that. (laughs) For sure. And part of that is like people around you who are like, Hey, this is working. Cause like in the, in the early days, it isn't even, I don't know, maybe it's like your follower count a little bit, or maybe it's, um, but honestly, it was really just even getting an order that was, Hey, that I don't know that person. And they ordered something, <laughs> you know, like that's amazing. Yeah. That's like the best feeling when you're starting. Or whatever. Yeah. I feel like there's challenges in like every stage of the business. Like at first it's just like getting that, those couple first orders of people who like aren't your friends or people, you know, and then, you know, then it goes into hiring people and managing people. And there's always different struggles. For sure. And it definitely is a struggle. So I think like back to the, that original point, you just have to feel like it's, it's going the right direction and it's worth it. Amazing. So for the SOS spray, out of my personal curiosity, should I put it on before I put on makeup or after I put on makeup? Yeah. So I'm so glad you asked because I think sometimes people are especially confused because we are really, by and large, a makeup brand that has one skincare skew. And because of that, we're sitting inside the makeup area and then people see the spray and they think, oh, is it a setting spray? It's really not. You should use SOS on clean skin after, ideally, you can use it throughout the day too, but ideally you wash your face, you let it dry, and then you spray it on. And that's so that way, if you have moisturizer or if you have makeup on, it just can't penetrate as deeply, right? Since it's water-based. So water water is the delivery system here. Um, And so that's the only reason why. So I would do wash your face, let dry down, put SOS on, let that dry down just so it has as much time as possible to kind of work and then do your moisturizer, your serums or whatever you're doing. Awesome. Good. Um, I'm excited to use it. (laughs) Hey everyone, Olivia here. Hope you're enjoying our episode. Our clear cut collection features fine jewelry pieces inspired and designed with you in mind. Our collection is ever-changing, and each piece is handmade and made to order here in New York City. Don't forget to check it out and use the code COZY, C-O-Z-Y, for free shipping on any purchase. What has been your proudest moment since founding Tower 28? My proudest moment, I would say recently, was my daughter, Ellie, actually... Um, wrote a essay for school about, and they had to all choose someone that they respected. And most people chose like Oprah <laughs> or, you know, someone really legit. And I am not saying I am in the same ballpark as <laughs> Oprah or like any Gandhi or anyone like that. But that is, I think, who most of her, she's in fourth grade. And she chose me. And it was a story about how her mom had started a company, worked really hard. And it Aww. it honestly did really make me feel proud because I feel like I'm I'm setting I'm setting an example for her. 
right, of what women can do and what they're capable of. And I even feel like I'm setting a good example for her in terms of like, she sees her dad pitching in more, right? So she's growing up with the sense of like, it's not that women do housework and kids and men do, and frankly, I still do more mm-hmm. of the housework, but, um, <laughs> but that men are the ones who make the money or whatever. I feel like she's growing up with this sense of um, equity and um, and partnership, and I I think it's it's really ama- it's something I I am very proud of. And you're Chinese American, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm half Chinese as well. <laughs> oh, you um, are. Mm-hmm. My mom's uh, maiden name is actually Lou. Oh, cool. So maybe we're related. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe. <laughs> we could be. Um, I can understand and speak Yidiandian. How about you? Yidiandian. <laughs> um, how has your Chinese-American identity influenced your life and career? Oh, this is a big question. I think especially at this time, it's a weighty one, mm-hmm. right? I think for me as an Asian-American, having a brand that is not that is based in, um, we have like a beachy LA brand, right? And one of the things that I was always trying to show from the outset, from the very beginning was growing up in America. I was born in Minnesota. I grew up in like the Inland Empire of Los Angeles, which is like the east side of Los Angeles, um, predominantly white communities. Um, and I was always kind of the only Asian girl growing up. And all my friends were, you know, me too. Blonde. Did you? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Miami Beach, so I'm not a huge Asian community. Okay, so there you go. Not a huge Asian community, right? So I did not grow up. I mean, I grew up very much the only the only Asian kid back then, and I there and beach culture was so prevalent at the time, which I'm sure it was in Miami Beach too. And I felt like I didn't fit in. I didn't see myself in any of that, right? So like when I was Billabong, Hurley, all of that was really popular. My friends were all putting sun in, in their hair. Um, and everyone was yes. like, let's go play volleyball. Even though we, by the way, didn't live, we lived an hour away from the beach. We just really liked the style, <laughs> but yeah. I really felt like it wasn't, I didn't see myself in any of that marketing. I mean, never mind the beach marketing. Like I didn't see myself in any of the magazines or in any of the movies or anything like that. And so, um, I think as a beauty brand, I'm very conscious of the fact that we are creating aspiration. We are creating um, a beauty standard every time we put out any content, right? So I am that much more conscious of it. And I think one of the things I wanted to do with Tower 28 is to show the version of the beach that I see and know here in Los Angeles, which is literally every socioeconomic um, background and every like color under the sun of person. Cause it is, it's one of the, those things where the beach is one place that everyone gets to enjoy a healthy lifestyle, right? It doesn't really matter. And that was one of the things I really wanted tower 28 to be, which is why all of our products are, they start at 12 and they end at 28. So it's compared to most clean products. It's a really accessible price point. We actually try to stay pretty close to like Sephora collections pricing, right? Or Glossier or something like that. Mm -hmm. Because I wanted the products to be um, for everyone, not just um, both like in the, in the visuals we put out and everything else. 
Um, but just to go back to the the stop Asian hate part, I think I think the part that's really important right now is to realize that it's not just the it's not just the hate crimes that have gone up, right? Because I think that's the most extreme version when you think about someone dying or somebody um, like you see a really old person getting pushed on the street, like that is horrific. Mm-hmm. But that is. But then I think sometimes people look at that and they're like, oh, there's 2000 cases. How about all the times that like, um, you know, everyone else has things happen too, which I completely agree with. None of it is permissible. But I think what's really happening is there is a shift in the way that everybody, the perception of of Asians, um, which I think is more dangerous on a daily basis. So as an example of that, my kids who are, I have a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a six-year-old. The 12 and 10-year-old, early pandemic last February, when they were still in school, they were in school and they came home and they told me they were like waiting for pickup or whatever. So they were standing together and they said, um, another kid was standing near them was like, hey, my mom told me not to stand too close to you guys because you might make me sick. Whoa. And they came home and I was like, they told me this, but they kind of laughed it off, right? They kind of laughed it off and they were like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. And so I didn't make that big of a deal about it. And But I've also found myself being that much more conscious of like, if I cough or if I, you know, anything in public, I'm more conscious yeah. of the fact that somebody's going to look at me and and think I'm unhygienic I'm dirty, anything like that, right? And I, I don't. I live in a really liberal bubble. I live on the west side of LA, mm-hmm. right? So I'm not talking about like if this is happening here to my kids, and if that's happening to my kids, that's because the those kids are at home and their parents are talking about it, or they're maybe they have the news on and they're hearing yeah leaders of the world say things like the Kung flu virus or whatever it is, or the, the China Chinese virus. Flu. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the, the China virus. So I think the danger is really in um, these, the words we use, the perception that we perpetuate. So I don't know. It's really, uh, it's an, an unfortunate thing that's happening. Yes. It makes me sad. Mm-hmm. Um, what, motivates so, I mean, I'm sure I don't know if you feel the same way but I definitely do it's like it's really heartbreaking every day to watch the news and like see these images day after day like my mom is older and she's with us now and I'm always like a little nervous when she's going out by herself because I don't want you know her to get hurt yeah. like I don't know <laughs> totally it's something I think I haven't thought that much about either um but I also think that like like me, you are, I very much feel Asian American, right? Like yeah. I feel like I was, I was born here. I grew up here my whole life. And so, um, like this is my country. And yeah. so I think that's, it. it's especially terrible. Yeah. And I think what makes this country so awesome and so unique is that it's comprised of so many different people from different cultures that can make it you know so rich and we can take from all of that so it's just like it's annoying it it sucks it hurts when any group is targeted for you know the way they look or their traditions or background yeah totally 
Um, on a more positive note, um, <laughs> what's um, something that motivates you? Like, what is something that drives your ambition? Um, I really love seeing um, it's the I think it's the team and the community part of it, right? Like, I really feel like to um, to put something out into the world and feel like it's well received and people love it. And I think being part of the conversation, all of that really is motivating for me. It's um, like recently we went to a full shelf at Sephora. So we were on like a 14 inch shelf and now we're on a 28 inch shelf and we're on the top. And like, if you go to Sephora right now, we're in the front of store too. And I think it's seeing all of these things come to life like putting an idea out in the world and working with my team to make it happen and having it feel really tangible is so exciting, really. Like I'm sure you feel the same way when you, that you can be a part of somebody's life, right? You're putting jewelry out into the world and in such a meaningful way that you're then part of their life. And I think um, we on a much smaller level, right? We're putting in out beauty products, but to put something out there that people receive and it makes them happy, um, I think is really yeah. a really amazing thing. Like I, just a quick story. I was at, um, I was at Sephora recently and I was looking at our end cap and the guy who was, there's a guy working there and he at Sephora and he was picking curbside orders and there was a brand there next to us. And I said, Oh, how's this brand doing? And he said, well, it's fine. He's like, I don't really hear that much about it. And, um, but I'm sure they're doing, you know, great or whatever. Um, and he's like, but you know what brand you should really look at? Cause it's, I love these products is tower 20. And I stopped and I was like, wait a minute, I'm the founder of tower 20. Wait, <laughs> and he fully fangirled. He was like, oh! <laughs> and I, I'm not, you know, I'm not a influencer. I'm not, um, I'm like a regular person. So I guess I'm not used to that. And so to have that exchange felt so exciting to me and it felt like it was, it was real. So I guess I know, I think a lot of the listeners mm -hmm. you have are people who probably want to do um, things entrepreneurially. And I would just say like, I came into this with no, no influence um, other than my working relationships, right? So I had beauty industry expertise, but that was something I also worked for. I did that for a long time before I became a founder. Um, and I think even people get put off by like, oh, well, I can't raise money. I didn't raise money from like, it's not like I have a t like a bunch of people who had, some people can raise money from a few people who have a lot of money. That was not my situation. I raised from a lot of people with a little bit of money. Mm -hmm. And so I guess- I would just say it's, yeah. it's, there's no one way to do it and it's all, it's all possible. To shift gears a little bit, since, you know, we are a jewelry company and we feel that, you know, every piece of jewelry has, you know, some sentimental meaning or some significance. Just curious, what um, pieces of jewelry are your favorite and why? I mean, of course, I my I would be remiss to not say that my favorite piece of jewelry is my um, engagement ring. Um, and I think the reason my engagement ring is so, you can see, um, the reason why it's Beautiful. so special to me is obviously it's important to me because my husband gave it to me, but also because um, maybe this is oversharing, but he is a really frugal person. 
I mean, really, <laughs> really, really, and that's a nice way of putting it, right? So um, I think to me, it is, um, it was always going, like, when he gave me this ring, I knew it was at like the outer limits of what made him comfortable, for sure. Like just spending money at all makes mm-hmm. him uncomfortable. But it was, um, he had read a piece of advice <laughs> from, so my husband in, invests, um, he's an investor and he loves Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, which are some of the most famous value investors in the world. And one of the pieces of dice that they've been very public about is that you should um, not chintz out when it comes to jewelry, because jewelry is, especially when you're talking about giving it to your significant other, it is an investment and it is a mark of like, they will look at it every day and they will remember how you feel about them every day. And I think that is what it is for me, right? Like, I think like my husband, as cheap as he is, for lack of a better word, like in that moment, he went as big as he could, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And it just makes me, it reminds me how important that decision was to him and that commitment. So I do have a lot of um, sentimentality around it too. Not just because of the, I don't know, worth or the size, but. Yeah, it's like super so special. If, if anyone out there is listening, go big. <laughs> <laughs> Love go big. that. Your, your, your person will remember. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, this was so much fun. I love chatting with you today. Um, could you tell everyone where they can yeah, follow, follow you, where they can Territory buy your Beauty. products? We are and, on Instagram. You know, stay up to date on all things um, we're on Tower Twitter. 28. Um, my personal handle is at Amy Lou, A-M-Y-L-I-U 47. Um, I don't post that often, but I definitely am there and I'm in the DMs on, on both channels. Um, and then we're sold at online and all stores at Sephora, um, U.S. and Canada, as well as Credo Online and In-Store and Revolve. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time to do this. It was super fun. We had so much fun talking to Amy about her take on the beauty industry. If you want to shop the products discussed in the podcast like SOS, make sure you go to tower28beauty.com. Just like Amy's engagement ring, what gift or piece of jewelry has meant the most to you and why? Why? 